BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is episode 234 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. We're talking about the effect of lifestyle modifications on testosterone. So we're going to be talking about exercise. How does exercise affect testosterone both in the short term? So directly like during and and directly after exercise and then also like long-term. So lifelong exercisers, do they have higher testosterone levels than people who are insufficiently active? We're going to talk about dietary changes and how that affects testosterone and what this all means for your training. Do you need to worry about testosterone? Uh, I'm not foreshadowing. I promise you (laughs) this stuff is, uh, Probably interesting to our readers, although I will tell you, and I told Austin this before, I overdid it. I did I did too much. You know, sometimes we, when we make an outline for these podcasts, we don't just get on these things and just talk. You know, we could probably make a podcast where we just talk about things and people might listen. Although, I, I'll tell you, I am completely uninterested in listening to two dudes just talk randomly about stuff that's going I on. I would be completely <laughs> uninterested in being on such a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but normally our, our, the outlines are, you know, a page, two pages, something like that. And we kind of have like a, uh, an idea of what we're talking about and try to structure it. This is 13 pages. Now I don't want, don't click, don't st- click stop here. Don't, don't do that. But the reason why it's so lengthy is because I did a deep dive into the literature to find answers to questions. So like, for example, how does resistance training affect testosterone levels, uh, compared to endurance training compared to elite level, uh, resistance training, uh, resistance trained athletes to, uh, you know, recreational athletes, all the sort of stuff. So we're going to do a deep dive into that on this week's podcast, episode 234. But before we do, joined by the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. What's going on, man? Hey, uh, just got home a little while ago. Been spending the day with medical students all day today, teaching them. And like I said, advanced learners are now second years. They have uh, graduated to their second year, <laughs> the preclinical phase. So, I mean, it's got to be more rewarding for you. I, I feel like when you interface with learners who uh, you see go from like one phase of learning to the next. And, you know, now they start having not only different questions, but like more interesting questions Mm -hmm. to you, things that are clinically relevant, things that you see, things that are, uh, as I would say, more nuanced, uh, rather than like, Hey, do you remember this weird, like gene deletion thing? (laughs) (laughs) And you're like, no, I do not. Yeah. Yeah. I do like just kind of scaling my teaching style and and how I go about it for the full spectrum of learners that I interface with all the way from first year med students to third year residents. And so today was 
early on and teaching about differential diagnosis and abdominal pain and things like that. So it was a good day. My, my, I remember like a similar interface, uh, with a, an attending when I was a second year and she was, she was kind of going through, like, this is the first introduction to how to develop a differential diagnosis. So effectively the list of all of the things that somebody could have wrong with them that's causing their symptoms and the clinical findings, the reason why they're in the hospital. And, uh, the last thing she said, she was like, you know, the differential only needs to be long enough to include the correct diagnosis. <laughs> yeah, and I true. was like, <laughs> uh, like God got us. Um, <laughs> in any case, uh, for the listeners at home, just a reminder, we have new articles on the website. We have fresh new apparel. If you want to rep barbell medicine at your gym, that's also on the website. Uh, that's all linked in the description below the bodybuilding two template that we released Oh man, three weeks ago is now in the app. So if you purchased the template on the website, you can now get it via the app. So go to the Apple iPhone uh, app store, uh, download the Barbell Medicine app if you don't have it yet, and then you can access it there. All of our supplements are also back in stock. And then this is a uh, new announcement. We're, we're doing a super seminar. I'm so excited about this. Uh, we've previously like separated our seminars into the pain and rehab seminar and this health and performance seminar. And now what we're doing is we've combined them and, and, and introduced some new lectures, some combination lectures, some other uh, interesting facets by combining our two uh, product offerings into one. And we're going to do that in September in Los Angeles. Uh, it's going to be you, myself, Dr. Campitelli, Tom, <laughs> Leah, <laughs> Derek's going to be there, some other staff from the pain and rehab uh, team, and uh, we're going to go off. So if you've ever wanted to kind of get the best of both worlds, or if you previously attended a seminar, uh, like our health and performance seminar, but you want some of the pain and rehab stuff and see how it all like interfaces together, come check us out. Yeah, we're in September in LA. That's linked in the description below. Uh, and then also we'll be in uh, Sacramento at the Untamed Strength Gym from uh, Dr. Alan Thrall. Uh, we'll be there in October. Uh, still have some spots available for that. And then we'll be down under in Australia in January. We'll be in both uh, Perth and Sydney. So if you're in the South Pacific and uh, you're interested in seeing the Barbell Medicine crew at uh, in your uh, area, check that out. It's linked in the description below. Last but not least, uh, you know, we, we've been running with the sponsorship from Pioneer Belts, General Leathercraft. And yeah, previously their main product offerings have been belts. They've been uh, wrist straps and uh, they make some other soft goods as well, like wrist wraps and whatnot, but uh, mainly known for their belts. They do make great belts. So whatever uh, sort of needs you have for your belt, whether it's a powerlifting belt, four inches wide, 13 millimeters thick, single prong or lever or whatever. They've got some really, really great products uh, in that regard, but they just introduced knee sleeves. Now, Austin, I know that you've gone through at least a half dozen pairs of knee sleeves in your training career. I think you used to be an SBD guy, you know, and then I've you actually got, gone through three pairs. <laughs> okay. Okay. A quarter dozen. There you go. Were. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> OG was the, was the rebands and then, um, SBD. And then at some point also got a, a additional pair for training purposes, the old evolutionized brand that turned into what is now stoic. I think those are the main three that I have, that I've used. And, um, the last kind that I got were SBDs that were actually back from 2015, I think. And I've still not replaced those. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, so if you've been in powerlifting like me for a way too long, SBD did not exist when I started powerlifting. 
Yeah. And in fact, so you could either get the blue Ray-Ban knee sleeves from Jackal's Gym. They were the only distributor at the time. Rogue was not selling them. You could only get the blue ones, the good ones. They were good and big in weightlifting and strongman, actually. Those folks tended to use those the most, both knees and elbows. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Brad, It was Brad Gillingham's brother who ran Jackal's Gym, or that sort of distributor uh, for Ray-Ban. Um, and so, yeah, you would get you know a pair and you'd wear them uh, for powerlifting, mostly squats. Uh, but they were made for weightlifting or strongman or other sort of dynamic activities. They weren't quite as long top to bottom as like an SBD sleeve is now. So when SBD came out in 2014 or so, basically changed the whole game. People were like, wow, these are far better. And I think that's true, not only from a dur- durability standpoint, but also just a support kind of standpoint. At least they feel better. I don't, I don't really know. Uh, you know, when you look at the data on knee sleeves, eh, it's kind of all over the place. But in any case, they felt better. Well, subsequently, a bunch of other manufacturers have entered the space and now Pioneer is in the space. So they're going to be sending me some uh, knee sleeves. So I get to finally uh, replace my my SBD knee sleeves with some Pioneer ones. And I'm uh, excited to try them out. But yeah, they're the same thickness as the SBD knee sleeves. Also the Stoic brand, there's all seven millimeters thick. They're all 30 centimeters long. Those are like the max limits for powerlifting. And so I'll be curious to see uh, how they stack up. But uh, if uh, their belts the quality of their belts is any indication. I suspect that their knee sleeves are also going to be great. Yeah, so, I would totally try them. Same. I'm just general leather. They make great stuff. So yeah, check them out. They support those who support us and uh, we can keep doing this podcast for, uh, well, as long as we keep Austin interested, I think <laughs> <laughs> we just, we just have to keep them interested enough. Um, in any case, Hey man, uh, things, things going okay. Otherwise doing fine. Uh, more or less. I mean, training is doing what training has done for the past year. So ups and downs, sometimes okay, sometimes not so okay. Just kind of riding it out and uh, focusing on things that I'm enjoying, uh, mainly all the teaching and some of the clinical work and stuff like that that I do. So things are okay. Nice. Yeah. Training, I have pivoted back to you know, my preferred sort of training, which is, uh, it actually looks pretty similar to power building three. So a lot of SBD work and then some accessory stuff away from the bodybuilding stuff, just mm-hmm. cause I was becoming disinterested in doing all that. And I'm like, I'm feeling pretty strong. I should probably like, you know, leverage this. And so, yeah, I, I'm back to regular bench pressing, uh, quite a bit. And, uh, it's a, it's a feeling good. So good. we'll, good. yeah, we'll see. Um, also this week, if you're at all interested in motocross, that sort of stuff, they have the Loretta Lynn's national championships. It's held in Waverly, Tennessee, which is a town, uh, it's about 20 miles North of Nashville. And, uh, it's a week long national championship for all amateur motocrossers in the basically across the, the world, but it's mostly U.S.-based folks who end up coming there because, again, it is in the middle of nowhere. So if you were from out of the country, you'd have to either be really, really good and have some funding to get over here. But, uh, yeah, that happens. The most interesting thing about this is that the heat there is absolutely insane. It's, you know, 90 degrees plus almost every day with really high humidity. And so the races are much longer than they normally are at traditional like amateur races so not only is the length but also the heat and so uh it's funny i you know i know some of the medical staff that like attends this and they see heat stroke and heat exhaustion and and dehydration and stuff like that all the time and so you know it is uh we are in the summer months and so if you're interested in like hydration what do we uh we did a podcast on that 
And uh, I'll link that in the description below. But uh, yeah, I've been getting all these updates, been watching the races uh, in between work. And uh, it's my 20 year anniversary. I went there in 2003. And now 20 years later, I'm like, I'm getting the itch. I want to go back. <laughs> I just think it'd be cool to go there with my dad, you know, do the camper thing for a week and, 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 and kind of revisit, revisit that. Although now in a vet class rather than like a, yeah. uh, skill group, but uh, we'll see. It's still, it's the best, they're the best in the country and um, yeah, it'd be cool. So if you're all interested in motocross, you can just Google Redolins and find some cool race action. If you're not interested, I apologize for the last 60 seconds because <laughs> it's completely <laughs> irrelevant. All right. So in this episode, we're going to talk about the effects of lifestyle change, lifestyle modification on testosterone. And mostly that's going to focus around exercise and dietary pattern change. But first, let's review what we've talked about in the last, what do we do, three podcasts on testosterone so far? This is our last one, yeah? <sighs> this is it. Okay, this is good. it. I, th I think, yeah, <laughs> I think now we have effectively, you know, covered all that there is to cover with respect to testosterone and things you might change, manipulate, or otherwise be curious about. But, you know, I'm sure we'll uh, get some feedback about that. And maybe, maybe there'll be a fifth one down the road. <laughs> but uh, yeah, this is uh, the fourth installment of Barbell Medicine Takes on Testosterone. So just as a review, the normal levels of testosterone for men are somewhere between 300 to 800 nanograms per deciliter. And that does vary based on the lab, but those are in general considered the normal levels of testosterone for men. For women, it's between 15 to uh, 46 nanograms per deciliter, so far lower. There is significant analytical variance due to the actual method of testing and the equipment used. Uh, it's about 4%. And there's also biological variance, which uh, is about 12%. And that's just if you did the same exact test on the same exact person on the same exact day, as long as you're testing them within the correct time period, which is usually between 8 to 10 a.m., 7 to 10 a.m., something like that under fasted conditions, the value that you get could also be up to 12% different. And it would still effectively represent the same sort of uh, testosterone uh, analysis. Testosterone is produced um, in men by the Leydig cells in the testes, uh, and then there's also some peripheral conversion um, of different uh, intermediates to testosterone. It's the primary way by which women uh, generate testosterone, also men who are prepubescent. Uh, as far as the signaling for testosterone, the hypothalamus, which is in uh, in your brain, uh, secretes a uh, signaling hormone uh, called GnRH, gonadotropin releasing hormone, that travels to the anterior pituitary gland, also in the brain, uh, and that is triggered to release LH, luteinizing hormone, and FSH, follicle stimulating hormone. Luteinizing hormone then travels to the testes to produce testosterone. FSH also travels to the testes, and it is involved in spermatogenesis, which is a fancy way of saying sperm production. And then there's negative feedback uh, by both testosterone and estrogen um, to the brain to basically say, hey, we got enough testosterone on board. We don't need to pump out any more GnRH. Uh, and subsequently, LH and FSH production go down in order to keep this within a normal sort of range. So that's normal levels of testosterone. 
low levels of testosterone encompass are part of a, a disease process called hypogonadism. Hypogonadism is a clinical syndrome that results from the failure of the testes to produce physiological concentrations of testosterone and or a normal number of sperm due to disease at one or more areas of this hypothalamic pituitary testicular axis. All right. Uh, so we covered that in the first installment of um, uh, this testosterone series, if you will, that's linked in the description below as well. With respect to health, we did a whole nother podcast on how does testosterone, uh, how do testosterone levels correlate to health? And the takeaway from that, there's no single optimal level of testosterone. Again, there's a range. And within that, testosterone levels are likely reflective of health rather than predictive of health, meaning that if an individual uh, has obesity, for example, or diabetes or heart disease, sleep apnea, uh, excess alcohol use, et cetera, all of those things tend to lower testosterone levels. And so if you see somebody with a higher testosterone level still within normal limits compared to a lower testosterone level, but still within normal limits, that gives you some indication of their health status. And in most cases, if you improve overall health, you improve or increase overall testosterone. And I'd actually like to make a kind of correction there. When I say improve, I don't know that higher testosterone levels, and in fact, I, I'm pretty confident that higher testosterone levels aren't ne necessarily better because the, the whole signaling cascade is much more complex than that the testosterone hormone itself needs to bind to the androgen receptor and the amount of androgen receptors that somebody has and it's their sensitivity uh, effectively are all related to the ultimate response caused by testosterone. So just because you have a higher level of testosterone doesn't mean you're getting more effect. But in any case, if an individual improves their health status, so if they were previously pre-diabetic, uh, for example, improving that would likely increase their testosterone level and that may or may not relate to uh, the outcomes um, generated by uh, testosterone, which would be things like uh, secondary sex characteristics, so that's hair growth, voice deepening, et cetera, also things like muscle mass, muscle strength, and whatnot. Uh, the relationship between total testosterone levels and health in women is less clear, and so I don't really want to comment on that other than to say that again, the range is much lower, 15 to 46 nanograms per deciliter, but also pretty difficult to interpret because of all that analytical and biological variation we see within the test. And so it's like if a woman's testosterone level goes from 20 to 40, they're like, oh, I doubled. But you're like, yeah, but I can't be sure that that's a real change because the numbers are so low. Nevertheless, having a quote unquote normal testosterone level is still important for both uh, men and women, and we'd like to see them uh, within normal limits. That was the second installment of the this testosterone series. And in the third and, uh, you know, second to last uh, uh, installment, we talked about performance and we talked about the use of anabolic androgenic stero uh, steroids. So AAS, they're a form of PEDs, performance enhancing drugs that have been in sport and have been used since they were made available. The use of these agents are very common. It's not just testosterone. It's all sorts of other agents, but the use is common, uh, estimated to be about 20 to 60 percent in competitive sport. Non-athletes also use these agents, uh, and the lifetime prevalence is about 1 to 5 percent worldwide across all the, all the entire population, so not just athletes. It is higher in the U.S. and higher in gym goers of both genders, and many of these individuals use much higher doses and combinations of different uh, anabolic, androgenic steroids 
than we, what we would see in uh, testosterone replacement therapy, uh, for example. And for those who are using exogenous, so outside the body uh, testosterone, there's a dose-dependent relationship between how much testosterone they're taking and how much muscle mass and mus- muscular strength they generate. Although this relationship is not true when testosterone levels are within normal limits. And we're going to explore that in some pretty great detail in this particular podcast. Uh, so in any case, when you look at a snapshot of the population uh, at a particular time, yes, you see a correlation between testosterone and things like lean body mass and strength and an inverse relationship uh, between testosterone levels and body fat, which means that the lower the testosterone level in an individual tends to be, the higher their body fat is. Um, you see that at a, in a cross-sectional analysis, but when you actually look at how those folks do over time, so how much muscle mass do they gain, how much muscular strength do they gain uh, in response to exercise, there doesn't seem to be a correlation between somebody's initial testosterone level. And all of that leads us to today's podcast, again, episode 234, what are the effects of lifestyle modification on testosterone? Okay, so let's jump off here with the natural course of testosterone in response to exercise. In other words, how does exercise in the short term affect testosterone? And so when we look at studies, and there are a lot of them that investigate how do different training methods, training styles, training variables, uh, et cetera, how do they affect testosterone levels? They all pretty much come to the same conclusion. Testosterone acutely in the short term goes up following exercise for about, and get this, 30 minutes. Wow. This also coincides with a down regulation of androgen receptors, which the testosterone has to bind to on the tissue that it's affecting. So you could think about muscle tissue, for example. And if there's a down regulation of androgen receptors, that elevation in testosterone is not going to be able to do much uh, effect because effectively these uh, androgen receptors aren't available for testosterone to bind to. Over the next few hours, up to about three hours, testosterone tends to return back to basal levels, so somebody's normal testosterone level that you would check like in the morning, whereas androgen receptor content and sensitivity tends to increase. And so you see this sort of like inverse relationship between T levels, testosterone levels, and androgen receptor content and sensitivity. And all that is to say the body has multiple redundant sort of feedback loops and mechanisms to effectively make sure that it is prepared to interact with the environment in a way (laughs) that a person can uh, subsequently thrive. Right. It's like, yes, testosterone goes up directly after exercise. And if left, un, you know, nothing else changed, you'd be like, oh, cool. The gains are a coming. And the body's like, nah, slow your roll. Well, this is more uh, involved in some other things that we actually need to, to slow your roll. And we're going to downregulate androgen receptor content. And then when testosterone level drops back down to normal levels, yeah, we'll re increase androgen receptor content and sensitivity at the level of the target tissues like muscle and uh, then get some effects. Okay, so that's the short term. And so when we look at data on what happens to this, uh, there are a number of different findings. But before we get to that, I think something that will set the stage for the rest of this whole podcast is what sort of change in testosterone levels would it take for us to be impressed or find that change interesting? 
And so I'll start this, I'll start this question to you, Austin, what sort of change in testosterone would, would you find interesting in one of these studies? Like what are the parameters about that, that you would be like, Hmm, I, that, that is interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's important that you just pointed out this kind of, uh, you know, divergent response, I guess, would be how I would describe it between the blood testosterone response to exercise and what happens to the, you know, the, the receptor uh, side of things, because this is something I feel like I've harped on in every episode so far, because most of the folks out there in the, you know, either consumers in the fitness industry or people who are selling things or, or talking about hacks for your testosterone, they're really pretty myopically looking at just one side of the equation in terms of looking at what is the blood level and assuming that higher is better, assuming that lower is worse. In other words, assuming that the blood, the snapshot that you get in a blood level is effectively measuring the same thing as testosterone signaling and physiologic effects towards the outcomes that we all want to be true, like getting jacked and strong and stuff like that. And so when you add in this, the, the other side of the physiology here with the receptors and realize that Maybe if the receptor, you know, aspect is going in the opposite direction, maybe these increases or decreases that we see are not having that effect on the physiologic outcome in the way that we think, right? Because they're going in opposite directions, ultimately leading to what you described as basically like homeostasis, more or less, like things are staying mostly actually the same, uh, not so much that we're getting this huge spike and sudden surge in anabolic signaling that you would want to be true. And this is the same thing that applies to anybody selling a supplement or, or any other particular method or mode of exercise programming that will lead to testosterone increasing because it's like, hey, it does. But that is not the same thing as saying that the outcome that we care about is improved by this particular mechanism. And so just like we've talked about in tons of other contexts, I'm really caring a lot less about the, uh, the, the, the blood, you know, biomarker concentrations and much more. I'm the first thing I would want to see is an outcome that I care about. And then from there, I like getting, you know, greater degrees of hypertrophy or strength improvements or cardiometabolic, you know, other, other health aspects improving. And then I would want to have evidence that shows or convinces me that that improvement in the outcome is actually due to the difference in the blood testosterone level and not due to anything else, not just due to the general effects of exercise, for example. So that, that's kind of where my focus would be is the actual outcomes rather than, than, than uh, you know, biomarker focused. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm in agreement with that. And then the only thing I would add on would be in relation to the actual testosterone level. So it's like, okay, yes, you have differential responses to exercise like greater hypertrophy in one group, greater strength gain in one group, greater cardiorespiratory fitness or greater health outcomes in one group with a higher testosterone level that is statistically significant and repeated. And, you know, you see that in multiple data sets. That's one thing, one that's alluding to what you just said. But then the actual difference in testosterone would have to be of such a great magnitude that it is, it exceeds the sort of biological variance that we see in the test itself and the analytical variance. And so what I mean by that is if there's just a 50 or 60 or 100 nanograms per deciliter change in testosterone, and that is within the realm of this analytical variance and biological variance, I just, I can't care because I don't know that it's real. You know what I'm saying? So if somebody's testosterone goes from 500 to 550 and they're like, Oh, it went up by 50. And I'm like, 
we don't know if it actually went up <laughs> or yeah. if these are just these two different tests are actually telling you the same data uh, just with a little bit of variation that we expect and it's well characterized. Yeah, and the other tricky part about, you know, if you were to research something like that is even if you did see a significant, you know, change in the blood levels outside of these uh, kind of, uh, you know, variations in, in the test, it still is a correlation with their training outcomes. You still don't know that the difference in outcomes that they got is directly due to that difference in blood testosterone levels. They, they you know, both the training outcome and the increase in testosterone level could be driven by the fact that maybe you have a hyper responder on your hands and they just respond, you know, in every way you'd have to design some pretty clever, you know, study that I would actually need to sit down and take some time to think about if I were to design something that would actually convince me that this is very clearly mechanistically directly due to this testosterone difference and not just because the person trained. <laughs> yeah. I think that elegant study, yeah, would require like a lot of thought to come up with. Uh, although I would be, I, again, I, I would be impressed or interested um, in testosterone changes if, again, there were multiple data sets. So well, let's just say hundreds of studies all showing the same exact relationship. And in which case I'd be like, well, we may not know exactly how this works, but the finding is has been repeated so many times. And the strength of that finding is so high that I'm inclined to believe it. And I'm inclined to, to think that it's worthwhile uh, to maybe, you know, go after testosterone changes if, if that were to be found. But as we'll see, that uh, doesn't appear to be the case. So let's talk about mechanisms here about how exercise uh, can affect testosterone and how that might affect outcomes. So the theory here is that higher testosterone levels would then stimulate muscle protein synthesis to a higher level. And this would occur via an increase in amino acid uptake. Amino acids are just the constituent uh, uh, building blocks of protein. So the muscles taking those up to a greater degree, and then you get a higher net protein balance. And so therefore more muscle mass, uh, and potentially more strength from more muscle mass. Um, we see that in individuals with higher testosterone levels, they have an increased androgen receptor content in muscle cells. They also get, uh, more androgen receptors in their myonuclei. Those are effectively where the protein uh, generation occurs within muscle cells and also in satellite cells. These are effectively uh, undifferentiated cells that then can later contribute to muscle cells during the repair and remodeling process from exercise. The thing is, those relationships are primarily studied when people are taking exogenous testosterone levels at higher than normal levels. And so what we see in those individuals, people who are taking AAS, you know, PEDs, high doses of testosterone, uh, we see this, you know, elevated uh, androgen receptor content, androgen receptor sensitivity, and increased muscle protein synthesis. But that is not the same thing we see when we're talking about small excursions within normal limits for people who are not taking testosterone. So we're already starting from this theory of like, oh, look, higher testosterone, more muscle protein synthesis, more androgen receptor sensitivity, more androgen receptor content. But that's all from data on people taking higher doses of testosterone, not just, hey, my testosterone levels went up by 50 nanograms per deciliter within the normal range, and I'm not taking exogenous testosterone. So it's kind of, I think we're just conflating things. But you know, that's a good place to start from. So again, acutely, testosterone goes up after exercise. It happens more reliably in men in women, there are studies showing that testosterone goes up after exercise. Sometimes it goes down. Sometimes it doesn't change at all. And we, 
this is referred to acute testosteronemia, which is a fancy way of saying an, a short-term increase in blood levels of testosterone. Again, it returns to baseline within about 30 minutes. This does appear to be affected by program vari- programming variables, so exercise program variables like intensity, volume, exercise selection, etc. And we're going to go through this. We will. But before we do, if this acute testosteronemia only occurs for about 30 minutes, what possibly could be the magnitude of effect of that change? It's just 30 minutes. It's like how much protein could you actually build? How much muscle protein could you actually build in 30 minutes? (laughs) And anyway, all right, so let's go through this. Programming variables that affect this acute testosteronemia. Let's start with intensity. There was another study. They did three sets of six at their six RM, so three max effort sets. Um, There was a testosterone increase uh, of about 17%. And this might, you know, somebody could sell you a program. Hey, just do this three sets of six at RP10 and your testosterone go up by 17%. But then when you read the fine print in the study, the authors say, well, look, half of this increase at least was due to what's called hemoconcentration. Effectively, these people sweated (laughs) during the exercise. And so because they actually sweated out some fluid, there was a concentration, an increase in concentration of testosterone. Since it's nanograms per deciliter, once the deciliters go down... (laughs) (laughs) then the nanograms go up. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And also during the same time period, their steroid hormone binding globulin increased by 11%, which basically means the bound fraction of testosterone because testosterone is hydrophobic. It's got to be carried around by proteins. That's why there's uh, a much lower concentration of free testosterone floating around. It's usually carried by proteins. One of those proteins is steroid hormone binding globulin, SHBG, that went up with the protocol too. And so this acute testosteronemia response may all be explained by hemoconcentration. So sweating out <laughs> sort of the deciliters, as you said, and then also might be mitigated by this increase in SHBG. And so it's like, well, what does this acute testosteronemia even mean? And again, it only lasts for 30 minutes. So that's the story on intensity. It looks like there's maybe a threshold of intensity that needs to be there in order to uh, uh, increase testosterone. But the significance of that increase in testosterone is unclear because again, it's only 30 minutes. Also, when you measure it, people have sweated out some fluid. And so we don't know if it's a real increase in testosterone or just like an artifact of less deciliters, as you said, (laughs) Uh, plus the increase in SHBG. So now more of it's bound and you're like, well, dang it. I don't have any more like, uh, you know, available testosterone to do to do the work, to do the actions that I want it to do. Um, so that's the story on intensity, but you can keep that in the back of your mind. There seems to be this like intensity threshold. It's got to be heavy enough. So 50% is not going to do it. 40% is not going to do it. 100% will do it, but like there's some sort of threshold in there. Maybe it's 70% of 1RM, maybe it's 80% of 1RM. But again, why does this matter? I can't exactly say. Uh, exercise selection also seems to potentially make a difference with respect to acute testosteronemia. This theory here is that small muscle mass does not uh, elevate testosterone when it's exercised compared to larger amounts of muscle mass, and the increase in testosterone may be proportional to the amount of muscle mass being used. This is so commonly discussed on the internet that, you know, this is why you should squat because it uses more muscle mass and it'll increase your testosterone more. And it's like the number of assumptions that are baked into that claim (laughs) that go completely unquestioned because people want it to be true is pretty remarkable. Yeah. And in fact, there was another study where they did arms only training, 
versus legs plus arm training. And in the legs plus arm training, they actually saw a decrease of testosterone, 637 nanograms per deciliter to 628 nanograms per deciliter, which again is likely an analytical error or within that sort of error bar. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the arms only training went from 695 nanograms per deciliter to 827 nanograms per deciliter, which is also within that reference change value. And so again, between the analytical and biological variants that we talked about and the hemoconcentration risk that we talked about that could affect these findings and the SHBG changes that we discussed that could affect the, you know, effect of these findings. I just don't know that this matters. Like, I'm just not convinced this is a big enough change to care about. But if you're like, hey, using more muscle mass is going to increase testosterone more than using less muscle mass. I don't know that that's on solid ground, at least based on the existing data. There's another theory that, hey, if your rest periods are too long, you're not going to see this testosterone increase. This is like the metabolic demand theory. Like you got to really push yourself and and generate some metabolic fatigue in order to generate a testosterone response, particularly this acute testosteronemia, as it said. So they had nine dudes do six different resistance training programs that differed in load. They either used five or a 10 RM, and then they rest one versus three minutes and they compared the testosterone levels directly after training after all of these programs with the nine different guys. No differences in testosterone in any of the resistance training protocols. They did a different group of researchers compared two-minute rest periods to five-minute rest periods. Again, you would think that the two-minute rest periods would create more metabolic fatigue. And so if metabolic demand was a significant factor in this acute testosteronemia response, that they would see higher testosterone values in that group compared to the five-minute rest periods, which would have less metabolic fatigue. There were no significant changes in acute hormone responses at three months or six-month measurements whenever they tested these people. And so it's like, Again, does this matter? <laughs> I'm like, uh, so far, I don't know that any programming variables really kind of, you know, raises a flag like, ah, this probably matters for this acute testosterone, testosteronemia. And uh, further, even if there is a difference, why does it matter? Because it's only, yeah, what if minutes. you, what I'm curious what these folks would do? Like, what if you responded worse to a particular programming style, but that's the style that made your testosterone go quote unquote up. So what do you do? It's like, I'd pay attention to the, what you're responding to and not care about what was happening to my biomarkers. <laughs> Yeah. Well, there's this thought that like the acute testosteronemia may be indicative of what's called like an overload event or a stress event with respect to training. And so that if a program didn't generate this acute testosteronemia response, maybe it has less potential to work. But so far, that doesn't seem to be adequately reflected in the literature at all. It's just another theory lacking support. And again, so far, we haven't really found a programming variable that significantly modifies testosterone response. Uh, and even when there's statistically significant findings, like, oh, man, this, your testosterone levels went up by 100 or 150. Not only is that still within that reference change value sort of range, but again, we still have to consider hemoconcentration. Uh, we also have to consider the SHBG changes. And again, then to your point that you made much earlier in this podcast, what are the effects on outcomes? Does this make people grow more muscle, get stronger, get in better cardiorespiratory fitness shape? And uh, as we'll see, <laughs> the answer to that is likely no. Uh, okay, not to leave women out of this, they have no Leydig cells because they have no testes, right? And so the thought here is that this acute testosterone anemia is like only coming from the Leydig cells. 
And so if you don't have them, we're not going to really see an increase. And so in fact, most of the studies on women and this acute testosterone increase after exercise tend to not show an increase. And in fact, some show a decrease. Uh, there was one study that looked at 47 women with different body fat distributions, and they broke them up into different tertiles or thirds based on um, where their body fat was actually distributed. They did six sets of 10 reps at 75%. They did a blood draw pre and post workout. Total testosterone went from 35 to 44 nanograms per deciliter, which again is well within that reference change value. So we don't know that those diff- those values are actually different. And there were no significant predictive effects of testosterone response for or body fat distribution. So it didn't really matter, like, did they carry most of their fat around their hips? Did they carry most in their upper body or in their trunk, uh, their lower body, for example? Just didn't seem to matter. And so what I would have had to see in any of these studies is an increase from like 750 to 1,000, for example. And that would like be outside of that sort of reference change value. I'm like, oh, well, that might actually be real. And then I'd be like, well, did they have different outcomes? Did the group who had the higher rate, you know, levels of testosterone, did they get stronger or gain more muscle mass? But these studies are generally shorter and don't actually evaluate outcomes. And so from a mechanism standpoint, I am just uh, not terribly impressed. Overall, to me, it seems like testosterone acutely goes up following acute exercise, uh, following resistance exercise for about 30 minutes. That's most reliable in men, less reliable in women. In both cases, though, the increase in testosterone coincides with the downregulation of androgen receptors. And over the next few hours, up to about three hours, testosterone tends to return back to normal levels, basal levels, where whereas androgen receptor content and sensitivity tends to increase again to sort of re-enter homeostasis. There may be volume and intensity thresholds to tribute to trigger this acute testosteronemia. And that may be representative of this sort of overload uh, event or training stimulus that is appropriate for the individual, but that's speculative. It would be interesting to see if like people who responded better to exercise tended to have this acute testosteronemia response, whereas people who were, you know, low responders or, or non-responders to exercise didn't, but nobody studied that. Yeah, actually, I, I, off the top of my head, I don't have the reference immediately handy. I do believe there's one paper where they had uh, some some groups train and and looked at this kind of testosterone response to training, and then they kind of uh, crossed people over to so that they trained using the program that was more consistent with their testosteronemia response. Um, and I believe, if I recall correctly, that showed some some benefits in terms of doing that. Simil- but to the same to the same point that I made earlier, I don't know that the that the mechanism of that improvement in outcomes that they got was because of the testosterone changes. It could just be that the testosterone change again is, as you mentioned, a marker that they actually had sufficient training stress and they just like got put on a program that they responded better to. And so that's something that would definitely need you know replication and 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 to, to see more more uh, compelling evidence, particularly if anybody wanted to suggest using that as a biomarker to try to identify a program that you respond better to, but. I'd rather, you know, do our kind of trial and error method at the moment instead of worrying about the blood tests (laughs) immediately post-training, which are probably impractical for people to do anyway. (laughs) Yeah. In addition to that acute testosteronemia being relatively short, 30 minutes, the increase in testosterone is minimal compared to people using exogenous testosterone, so taking testosterone. Um, So, for example, a study uh, in men who received doses of 300 milligrams of testosterone in addition to uh, a medication that was designed to suppress 
their own testosterone production. So effectively all the testosterone they had on board was from the supplementation. The basal testosterone level went from 651 at baseline to 1344 <laughs> when they were on, when they were on testosterone, a hundred percent increase. Uh, and so while taking exogenous testosterone, uh, does seem to have a dose dependent relationship with both strength and muscle mass gain. The increases that we're talking about with respect to exercise f- in testosterone are so much smaller that I just cannot believe that it matters. And not only are they much smaller, they last for such a short period of time. It's just like, who cares? And I, I can't care. Same. It's <laughs> just who cares? <laughs> okay. So let's take a look at longer term studies on the effects of exercise on testosterone and see if there is a reliable trend. So days after training, testosterone can decrease depending on the training uh, sort of uh, intervention. So for example, one study, they had folks do 10 sets of 10 (laughs) on squats. It's like that German volume training. They did it at 70% of their one RM. That's Um, hard, man. (laughs) Yeah. Well, not as hard as the other group who did 20 (laughs) sets of one at a hundred percent. Hell yeah. (laughs) And there was a decrease actually in testosterone uh, for both of those individuals. So that's after days, two days, longer term. When we look at weeks, for example, in untrained individuals, there seems to be no change after resistance training in general. All right. So with respect to endurance and its effect on basal testosterone levels longer term, uh, they had previously sedentary folks do three to four days per week of 30 to 45 minutes per day of conditioning and looked at their testosterone levels at the beginning and the end. There was no significant change in testosterone levels in that particular study. Uh, in a study on highly trained swimmers, they had eight swimmers. They did 12 weeks of intensive training where their weekly, uh, what do you call it? Mileage? You just call it weekly distance. Well, in America, it's typically called yardage, but you know, these guys are doing meters. So I'm not, we don't typically use the term meterage, but yeah, 53,000 meters a week is a, is a decent dose. That's like, uh, some mid distance kind of folks doing that probably. Yeah. So they were doing that for 12 weeks on average, and then they tapered to 13,000 meters per week. And so the thought here would be like, well, if they were sort of doing this highly intensive training, their testosterone levels would drop during that phase. And then they'd super compensate when they tapered and that would allow them to swim faster after the taper because they tapered down to you know a fraction of the meterage, uh, if that's a word. <laughs> but in this particular study, there was no change in testosterone levels during either phase. Uh, they also took these 21 high level male runners in Spain. These were all either national or international, uh, sort of middle distance runners, uh, 1500 meters, uh, 5k, uh, racers, and they measured their testosterone levels every three months during their sort of preparatory phase for these races. And so they started at 659 nanograms per deciliter. And then at three months, their testosterone levels went down to 583 nanograms per deciliter at six months. It was back up 672 nanograms per deciliter. And then at nine months, it was 701. And so all this says to me is that like, look, man, even when you're preparing for a race over the course of a year, highly trained endurance athlete, testosterone levels don't really change. And, and, and so in addition to that sort of notion that like, oh, all this high, you know, high level of training is going to maybe drop testosterone levels that doesn't seem to be supported by evidence. You would, there's also this notion that endurance training in general 
would like lower your testosterone levels. Like, mm-hmm. oh, don't do too much cardio. You're going to lower your T levels and that's going to sacrifice your gains. It's like, well, where's the evidence of that? Yeah. The, the main context where that would happen would be in, you know, energy deficiency, meaning like, you know, the, what, what used to be called female athlete triad, relative energy deficiency syndrome, um, where people are just not eating, eating enough to keep up with the exceptionally high energy requirements of like ultra endurance sports, not like routine conditioning work. <laughs> so, yeah. Yep, exactly. And so it's what's interesting here, and I, I think I maybe overstated that I didn't find anything interesting because this actually was interesting. When you compare athletes to folks who are insufficiently active, uh, it might be that insufficiently active folks actually have higher levels of testosterone. So for example, they compared 20 professional soccer players versus 20 controls. They were age matched. They're all about 20, 20 years of age. So they're pretty young. The Insufficiently active folks had a uh, average testosterone level of 498 nanograms per deciliter, whereas the athletes had a testosterone level of 442. Uh, when you look at a meta-analysis, so again, a study of studies, they did 11 randomized controlled trials representing 421 insufficiently active folks who were otherwise apparently healthy. These were men aged 19 to 75 across 16 different sort of intervention groups who participated in aerobic resistance or combined exercise training lasting an average of 12 weeks. They concluded that exercise training does not seem to affect resting total or free testosterone concentration in those who are previously insufficiently active and who were eugonadal, so not hypogonadal men. And so it's like, does exercise actually affect testosterone at all? Like basal levels at all? And it's, I don't know, so far, I'm not convinced that it has a reliable effect on testosterone, but let's press on. Uh, with respect to resistance training. So let's look at older dudes. So these are, these were men aged uh, 55 to 70. They did a 16 week resistance training program and uh, they drew a testosterone level 10 minutes after the first session of the program and uh, 10 minutes after the last session of the program, 16 weeks later, serum testosterone did not change between the two uh, time points. In young men with obesity, they took uh, 21 dudes who were in their mid-20s um, who were uh, did a resistance training program. Um, they compared them to a control group uh, who did not do any resistance training. And these the folks who were exercising lifted three times a week. Uh, they did 10 exercises between 8 to 12 reps. They did that for 12 weeks. All of their BMIs were in the 30s to start out with. Also of note, their average 1RM leg press was over 250 kilos to start. Which, hey, look for untrained people. Like if you're like 551 pounds, hey, congratulations. <laughs> uh, in any effect, the control group, their testosterone level over these 12 weeks, they weren't exercising, went from 670 to 640 nanograms per deciliter, which, yes, is in that reference change value. I don't know that that's a real change, um, and neither does anybody else. The training group went from 690 to 820 nanograms per deciliter. And so, again, you could sell a program. Hey, look, man, just do these you know, do these 10 exercises, eight to 12 reps, do it for 12 weeks and your testosterone level will increase. It went from 690 to 820. It's evidence based, but that difference is still within that reference change value. And I'm like, what does this even mean? And further, they didn't correlate it to any sort of outcome that you care about getting stronger, gaining more muscle mass, gaining more cardiorespiratory fitness. And so it's like, even if that difference in testosterone is real, did it actually correlate with any improved outcome that we care about? And then if that were to be true, then it's like, okay, cool. So how confident are we that this happened due to the testosterone changes? And that's pretty much where we started this podcast at. And we're still at square one here. 
Okay, moving on in resistance training, how does this affect basal testosterone levels? There was an interesting study that compared training to failure versus staying far away from failure. They did. They used 42 basketball sport players. This is not basketball. This is like a particular type of, it's kind of like squash from the Basque region of Spain, I think. It's a 16-week study. Uh, these folks prior to engaging in the study were doing twice a week sport training. So they were playing this what's called Basque Pelota, I think. Uh, and they were doing twice weekly strength conditioning before the study. Then they entered a 16 week sort of training phase. They either were training to failure or not to failure on the bench press squat and a few other exercises. There were no differences in strength or power uh, between groups and testosterone increased from 865 to 951 nanograms per deciliter, but only in the group, not training to failure. And so we could advertise our low fatigue training programs be like look man it's going to increase your testosterone up to 951 nanograms per deciliter but it's within the reference change value and so i can't be sure that that change is real just you know okay cool it's another data point but like okay who cares uh when we look at uh, other data on resistance training in the elderly uh there's a meta-analysis they combine 22 studies on men greater than the age of 60 their conclusions and i quote Resistance training does not significantly influence basal testosterone levels. And you would think if testosterone levels go down as we age, which we do seem to find that report uh, supported by evidence, mainly due to people accumulating different medical conditions as they age, that seems to be the sort of main driver of testosterone going down rather than just like this age-dependent sort of decrease those folks you would you would suggest stand to benefit the most from exercise if it did increase testosterone right they have like the most room to grow up to go up and it's the most important for them to keep their testosterone levels normal it doesn't really have an effect according to this 2019 meta analysis the final thing here has to do with lifelong physical activity compared to being uh, physically inactive or insufficiently active. And so uh, with respect to aerobic training, they took 20 lifelong exercisers who were age 60 and compared them to 28 sedentary or insufficiently active individuals. Their average age was 63. The active oldies, as I put it, were leaner, fitter, and so on. But the author's report findings from this investigation suggest that resting levels of serum testosterone and calculated free testosterone were unable to distinguish between diverse lifelong training histories in aging men, meaning that they didn't have different testosterone levels despite one group being lifelong exercisers and the other group being sedentary. Uh, this is actually corroborated by evidence uh, based on physical activity tertiles. So what they did is they split uh, folks up into thirds based on how much exercise they do in a given week. And so even when they adjusted for age uh, and obesity status, there was no relationship between the amount of activity that people did and their testosterone level. The only interesting finding here was that in non-obese men, those in the highest physical activity tertile were less likely to have low or low normal testosterone than those in the lowest tertile, which I'll, I'll buy that. You know, if, if you're the most active compared to the least active, I would expect your testosterone level to, you know, be likely to be more normal than those in the, in the lowest level. As you discussed in previous episodes, perhaps more reflective of general health status. Yep. I would agree. So overall to me, it seems like exercise doesn't really influence basal testosterone levels in the medium to long term, uh, And so I just, 
this whole idea about oh to you know exercise and particularly like squats or deadlifts or you know these big compound lifts really drive up testosterone levels i'm like where's the data for that like i can i can cite you papers that show a marginal increase in testosterone levels but they're not big enough for me to care about and further it's not clear that those actually correlate to outcomes so you haven't even done that secondary step and then because you haven't done the secondary step, you haven't done the third step, which is then showing that that change in testosterone is actually predictive of training outcomes compared to anything else. Like, do the people who get a higher testosterone level gain more muscle mass or get stronger? And it's like, well, somebody do the study. I don't have, I, I can't do the study myself, but since that study hasn't really been uh, done, I just don't know why people are saying all this and why they're saying it so confidently. That's kind of a theme for a lot of things that we talk about. It's like, just having less confident opinions on things than, than a lot of folks, particularly as it relates to fluctuations within normal ranges, because it is very plausible to me that some of the changes that you have observed in some of these trials are in fact real. Um, you know, in the sense that if you have a decent enough sample, then the systematic error from analytic variation and stuff like that kind of gets washed out. And so perhaps there is some degree of a real effect in some of those interventions. But again, most of those changes are quite small and within the normal range. Um, and, and that from other data sets, <laughs> we can't, we aren't terribly confident is something to get super excited about or definitely to like make dramatic training decisions around that. Yeah. Because these values are relatively small, like the differences in like starting testosterone and, and the, you know, testosterone after a particular training intervention that, and you're trying to suss out like these pretty nuanced details, you need a big sample size to really like make sure it's adequately powered. And so you can be confident in the result. And uh, so far I'm just not convinced. So one last question remains about testosterone levels and training. Do testosterone levels predict training outcomes? In other words, is having a higher testosterone level while not hypogonadal or taking exogenous testosterone to have super physiological levels, is that better? So let's look at this. There's this hormone hypothesis regarding testosterone that increases in testosterone drives hypertrophy and strength in a dose dependent fashion. And that's all from people taking exogenous testosterone. So they're supplementing their testosterone levels to above normal levels. And yeah, that seems pretty ironclad that there's this dose-dependent relationship. The higher the dose of testosterone, the more strength people gain, the more hypertrophy people gain. Um, yeah, that's pretty well established. Similarly, we know that decreases in testosterone due to hypogonadism, so having lower than normal testosterone levels, has the opposite effect. Both of those things are pretty well established. So the theory here then would be that more testosterone equals more gains. But again, we're restricting this analysis to just differences in testosterone levels within the normal range without being hypogonadal or without taking exogenous testosterone. So let's start with lean body mass. This first study, they took 821 men. Uh, their basal testosterone levels were positively correlated with lean body mass. So the higher the testosterone level, the higher amount of lean body mass they had. And it was inversely correlated with adipose tissue. So that means the higher the testosterone level, the lower level of body fat. But in longitudinal studies by the same research group, there was no influence of baseline testosterone levels on change in these parameters. And this actually implies a like, sort of opposite sort of directional arrow, meaning that the body composition affects hormone levels more than hormone levels affect body composition. And that's what we know about obesity and how it affects testosterone levels. That makes perfect sense. Um, okay. 
still talking about lean body mass here. They took 67 untrained college aged men and they lifted three times a week for 12 weeks. They did back squats, bench press, deadlifts, bent over rows in a periodized fashion. They measured lean body mass via DEXA. So this is a fancy x-ray that gives pretty accurate results. It's the gold standard right now to assess body composition change. They also measured the thickness of the vastus lateralis. That's a muscle in the leg via ultrasound. And they measured 3RM uh, squat and bench press. They clustered these uh, college-age men who were previously untrained into three different groups based on the response, the hypertrophy response of their vastus lateralis thickness. So those who gained the least amount of thickness in their leg, they were the low group. They gained about 0.11 centimeters. Those in the moderate group uh, with respect to thickness of their vastus lateralis gained a thickness of about 0.4 centimeters. And those, the high responders gained about 0.69 centimeters. There was no correlation of testosterone with any of these outcomes. And further, they explained about 10% of the variation in the high responders uh, because they actually started with a lower thickness of their vastus lateralis uh, and still had the potential to grow more. So the uh, author's they thought that, well, maybe they have higher muscle plasticity and capacity for growth than the low responders, but it's not really explained by the variables assessed in the study, which was testosterone. Um, that was in 2018. Uh, a, a similar study in women, uh, this was actually a meta-analysis of 10 studies, over 1,000 women showed no correlation between testosterone and muscle mass, muscle strength, or performance gain. Uh, so that's a story on lean body mass and testosterone uh, within the normal limits. It's, I suspect uh, there will be a bunch of other studies that continue to come out, but whether or not they actually show that having a higher testosterone level or increasing a testosterone level due to a particular training method actually increases hypertrophy more, that remains yet to be seen. Um, okay, moving on to muscular strength. There are no longitudinal studies comparing outcomes of low versus high normal uh, endogenous testosterone levels and training outcomes. What that means is that we don't have studies where they separate folks into fo uh, groups that have high uh, testosterone levels, but still within the normal range and low testosterone, still within the normal range, and then look at how much strength they gain in response to a training intervention. Um, what we do have is a sort of natural experiment when we compare men and women, men having a much higher testosterone level compared to women. And so you would suspect if testosterone was this super important hormone with respect to training outcomes and that having a higher testosterone level universally or at least reliably increased strength acquisition from exercise, you would expect men and women to have markedly different results with respect to strength gain. However, what you see is that men and women gain the same amount of relative strength Men and women gain the same amount of relative strength once when exposed to the same training intervention. That doesn't mean that they have the same level of absolute strength at the end of the training studies, but rather the relative improvement is the same. So if they all, if the average improvement was 5% in men, you'd predict that women would see the same 5% increase. They would still be lifting a little bit less at the end of the study, but the relative improvement would be the same. And there are multiple studies showing this. So for example, a 2000 study by Ivy et al. Uh, looked at the effects of training and detraining on muscle quality based on age and gender. And after a nine-week resistance training program, the increase in strength and hypertrophy were similar for both sexes and ages. 
in a 2016 study by Gentile looked at college age men and women training twice per week for 10 weeks and found no difference in training response of the biceps between genders with nearly the exact same effect sizes. Uh, Ribeiro looked at hypertrophy program, ran over 16 weeks in men and women and found that women actually had a higher uh, relative increase in upper body strength by about 5% for both eight week blocks of that 16 week training program. Um, and so some people are like, well, what about the mechanisms? What about muscle protein synthesis? Men have all this testosterone and androgen receptor content and sensitivity. Men surely have to have higher muscle protein synthesis than women. Well, that was investigated by a t- 2010 study by Dreyer. Uh, and they looked at muscle protein synthesis response to training and found that protein synthesis is independent of sex and does not appear to play a role in sexual dimorphism of leg muscle in young men and women. They had the same exact rates. And so it's like, you can't predict how somebody's going to do in response to training based on just their gender. Rather, you predict that the people who respond to the training program are going to respond variably based on a whole bunch of other different factors outside of testosterone. Uh, and I know we talk about this at our seminar, and I think people get it at our seminar, Austin. They, they're like, oh, that uh, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm with you. But like for our listeners, what I'm getting at is that Men don't get stronger compared to women when you expose them to resistance training. They start out stronger in general, but they gain the same amount of relative strength during the training intervention compared to women. And I think that's just an important thing. If you take nothing else away from this, you don't care about all the testosterone stuff, take that little nugget, file it away in your brain, and then you can use that uh whenever you're programming for different people or talking about training with different people. It's just this assertion that men are just these hyper responders universally to training. And it's like, no, nope. nah, we know plenty of weak dudes <laughs> <laughs> and we know plenty of strong women. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's look at muscle strength in older men. So this particular study is from 2006. They took uh, over 2,500 men age 65 to 99 years of age. Can you, can you just imagine you're 99 years old? You're almost a, Send, <laughs> you're almost a hundred and you're like, I'm going to sign up for this exercise study. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> yeah. Why not send it? Uh, okay. So they basically measured bioavailable testosterone and estrogen levels and also physical performance. The physical performance measures were grip strength, sit to stand gait test. This is basically like a sarcopenia screening. Mm-hmm. Um, they determined that at baseline and then they looked at like incident falls uh, every four months for four years of follow-up the fall risk in men in the lowest quartile, so lowest fourth of baseline testosterone was higher, 40% higher than in men who had the highest quartile of testosterone. Um, And this was before and after adjusting for physical performance. So effectively, you could just the testosterone in this particular group seemed to be predictive of fall risk. This to me is likely due to a longer term uh, maybe more pernicious effect of low testosterone levels over time. So the folks in the lowest quartile group had an te- average testosterone level of 268 nanograms per deciliter, which is low. In general, that's, we would consider that low, although we wouldn't call them hypogonadal because we don't know the rest of their symptoms and you know the extent of their testing. But if somebody had that level for a long period of time, it is likely, particularly folks in their 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, if they had that for a long period of time, they will typically lose more lean body mass than those with a higher level of testosterone. And so if that goes on unchecked for a longer period of time and you lose a significant amount of lean body mass, at some point, 
your muscular function is going to go down. And that's kind of the story on sarcopenia, right? You see the pretty significant muscle loss prior to loss of muscular function. And once your muscular muscular function goes down, effectively, you're kind of up a creek without a paddle. Because it's like, yeah, we identified this far later in the process than we otherwise would like to. Um, and so my thought when I see this relationship here isn't like, oh man, testosterone. It's, it's just the thing. It's like, well, yes, testosterone, but over a longer period of time, you see an increase in muscle loss in folks. So, yeah, and even, and, and this was a long, relatively long-term observational study. And, and even despite people's best attempts at, you know, doing statistical adjustments for people's health status, there are likely to be unadjusted for things that um, are different between the lowest and the highest groups in terms of health, which we've talked about as far as how health impacts can directly impact testosterone levels. And so it could be at least in some part related to long-term kind of untreated potential hypogonadism in these folks, but there may also be undiagnosed and unadjusted for health factors that can also contribute to their fall risk. Yep. Yep. And in women with respect to strength and testosterone levels, uh, a a meta-analysis found that uh, testosterone levels in women were not associated with hand grip strength or lean body mass in pre-menopausal women. Um, And so if you ask me what my confidence level is on testosterone levels in women in respect to strength acquisition from a training program, uh, taken together with the previous data that we, we talked about the, how men and women gain the same, gain the same relative amount of strength, um, to a given uh, exercise program. I'm pretty confident that testosterone in women doesn't actually matter that much when it's within the normal range at when it's within the normal range. And that's the, again, the important part that people we're not talking about folks who are taking exogenous testosterone or who otherwise have very, very low levels because they're actually some endocrine problem going on. So that's the story. We talked about lean body mass. Uh, again, doesn't really testosterone levels don't really seem to be predictive. We talked about strength Again, testosterone levels don't really seem to be predictive. Uh, what about sports performance though? And this is one of the, the studies that I've actually done a deep dive into um, just because it is absolutely fascinating to me. Um, A group of researchers uh, was effectively commissioned to do an exhaustive examination of the available research literature and databases available uh, from the IAAF, the International Association of Athletics Federation. There was effectively this case against Castor Semenya, and they were like, the, the council uh, who was, you know, overhearing the proceedings was like, look, we need to figure out the data. Like, what is the relationship between testosterone and performance in men and women who are competing at the highest level of track and field sports? And so what they found was that women with the highest free testosterone level uh, tended to perform better in the 400 meter uh, dash, the 400 meter hurdles, 800 meter dash. Is it still a dash at 800 meters? Like a 800 meter. I would not call it a dash anymore at that point. Yeah, yeah it's a long dash, 800 meter race. <laughs> Uh, also the hammer throw and pole vault and the, you know, the difference from, uh, folks in the highest level of testosterone compared to the lowest level was about 1.7 to four, four and a half percent. So there did seem to be like maybe a little performance, uh, improvement with higher testosterone levels there. However, there were a number of problems with this data set, um, uh, and particularly the analysis thereof, including duplication of data that skews the results use of data that could not be corroborated by actual event results, so maybe some fabrication there, and ignoring the results showing a negative correlation between testosterone levels and performance. So for example, there were some events like the 100 meter hurdles, 
200 meter race javelin throw where higher testosterone levels actually seem to predict a negative uh, performance compared to women with lower testosterone levels of a similar magnitude compared to the advantage seen earlier. Uh, to summarize, when you combine all of the data, it, effectively, there's no correlation uh, or a very small correlation between testosterone levels in women and performance. Uh, when you average all the data together, it's like 0.31% to 1%, effectively an error bar. Uh, and then when you look at that uh, same data set, but in men, there was no correlation between testosterone and performance in these events. Um, there's some data showing like sprinters, for example, have a higher testosterone level compared to endurance runners at the highest level of sport. But again, it doesn't really predict their performance within their sport. So it's like, okay, so what? These are people of different body compositions, different training protocols, different sort of training status, et cetera. So like, why are we comparing these? And like, just getting a higher testosterone level turn you into a sprinter or like getting a lower testosterone level within normal limits turn you into an endurance athlete. It's like, it'd be nice if it were that simple. Just, ju yeah, look, man, look, all you have to do is take testosterone. You will turn into a world-class sprinter. <laughs> we all know that to be the case. <laughs> okay. That's a joke for anyone listening at home. Like, please don't, don't do that. <laughs> and, but I if mean, you it do won't work, so whatever <laughs> it won't work. Yeah. Yeah. It won't work. But if you do happen to turn into like a world-class athlete, like just, Hey, let us know. Um, so overall, my thought here is that higher testosterone levels and, or more androgen receptor upregulation drives more gains uh, and that, you know, that is linked to more muscle mass, more strength, et cetera. But I don't think that this relationship holds when we're talking about testosterone excursions within the normal limits in folks who are not hypogonadal or not taking exogenous testosterone. Um, Austin, what do you, what do you think about that? Do you think that's like an accurate representation here? Yeah. I mean, the last episode that we talked about seemed, you know, to paint the picture of what happens when you exceed that upper limit of normal in people who are using uh, anabolic steroids. And that seemed to be a pretty compelling uh, story and history of how pushing things up into those ranges can give you that dose dependent kind of uh, uh, improvement in your, in your training response. But the, you know, there are seemingly lots of studies looking at, at these kind of fluctuations within the normal range with pretty modest, if any, uh, uh, results that get pretty hard to be excited about, at least in terms of tr basing your training decisions on testosterone fluctuations. Yeah, I agree. So my summary is that the chronic effects of exercise on testosterone levels are quite unremarkable and don't seem to predict training response. There is some emerging evidence that differences in genes relating to testosterone levels may correlate to muscle cross-sectional area and muscle strength along with higher testosterone levels. But this is a different claim than saying increasing endogenous testosterone levels by following a, diff a particular training protocol increases gains, which is not really supported by evidence. So we'll see how the data continues to shake out. But if I had to summarize the relationship between exercise and its effect on testosterone levels and subsequently that effect on training outcomes, my one word response is meh. I just don't, I just don't see like a, a reliable difference of a significant magnitude that gets me excited. So I remain unexcited. Yeah. I think I would just pay the most attention to what's your actual training response. If you are responding to your training program, great. If you're responding to your training program and you happen to get serial testosterone measurements, which we would not suggest is necessary, but if you did, and those numbers are increasing, that's cool. If you are responding really well to your training and you happen to do that and the numbers are lower, I would not 
overhaul your training because of that. I would look at potential other reasons why that might be happening. Or if you feel fine, just stop checking them. And, <laughs> and so ultimately what we're seeing here is, you know, we're following the training that we're responding to and worrying less about what the biomarker does. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I it's just, this idea that like, oh, you have to have a certain testosterone level in order to respond to a particular program. It's like, where are you getting this from? Like just making it up. I'm like, why though? <sighs> Long sigh. All right. So that's a wrap on exercise and how it affects testosterone. Let's talk about how does the diet affect testosterone. The theory here is not well-defined. There are a few common threads. Some people suggest that because testosterone is produced from cholesterol molecules via a series of enzymatic reactions, takes about 30 minutes, that if the diet is low in cholesterol, you might lack some of the raw materials to make testosterone. Just off the bat, we know that's false because literally every cell in your body can make cholesterol. So just can completely ignore that. But some people say that just Know that they're incorrect right off the bat. Uh, there's another theory here that eating more saturated fat can increase testosterone levels. The thought here is that, well, vegetarians and vegans reportedly eat less fat and less saturated fat. And yeah, they definitely have lower testosterone levels. Just look at them. They're so soy boys. No way. Mm -hmm. So ipso facto, eat more saturated fat. Your testosterone levels may go up. We'll talk about why that is, again, completely made up. Um, there's some uh, implication that other nutrients that could be consumed in the diet, like vitamin D, magnesium, zinc, et cetera, they're all involved in testosterone production and regulation. So eating foods that contain uh, one or more of these things may juice testosterone levels. Honestly, the list goes on and on. It's just not clear what the hell people are talking about or as covered in the training section, why it even matters. So let's do what we always do and take a look at some research. All right. So the natural history of like the dietary, the diet's effects on testosterone is that eating in general, eating anything tends to lower testosterone levels. Uh, and then because it's easier to distinguish a low testosterone level from a normal testosterone level when the normal value is higher, that is why we test folks, we test their testosterone under fasted conditions first thing in the morning because that is when testosterone levels are the highest. If you eat right before the test, you're messing up the test. And so that's why we test like that. So we know that eating in general lowers testosterone levels. We also know that energy balance matters. And so individuals with obesity who are carrying too much fat mass, we know that that is strongly correlated and predictive even of low testosterone levels. Again, there's an inverse correlation of testosterone and body fat. So the higher somebody's testosterone levels are tends to correlate with lower body fat. And again, there's a positive correlation between testosterone and lean body mass. Higher the testosterone levels are, the more lean body mass people tend to have in a cross-sectional study. Again, this is more reflective uh, of their health status rather than predictive. Uh, some pretty good data showing that like a 20, uh, there's a 20 to 30% reduction in total testosterone in men who have a BMI greater than 30 compared to BMI less than 20. Uh, this mechanism may be related to that steroid hormone binding globulin um, dynamics. So individuals who carry more adipose tissue might have more SHBG on board and uh, subsequently uh, affect testosterone regulation. Uh, we also know that based on a study of over 7,000 men from Europe, a body weight reduction that takes BMI from 30 to 25 would uh, basically produce a 13% increase in total testosterone. So carrying too much body fat um, from having uh, too high of an energy intake can definitely affect testosterone. 
But the TLDR on all this, we know that eating reduces testosterone levels and carrying too much body fat also tends to uh, reduce uh, testosterone levels. Okay, so let's talk about calorie intake and testosterone levels. So similarly to overnutrition, malnutrition tends to also cause low testosterone levels. So things like anorexia nervosa or relative energy deficiency syndrome that used to be known as the female athlete triad can reduce testosterone levels to hypogonadal levels. Uh, pretty much all forms of malnutrition, whether it's protein restriction or a protein energy deficiency, uh, can produce issues with testosterone production and cause hypogonadism. Um, interestingly, during like bodybuilding prep, there's actually a study looked at 14 natural bodybuilders. Seven of them were prepping for a show. Seven of them were controls. They were still training, but otherwise weren't dieting. Um, and so for 11 weeks, the groups who were prepping, the group, the people who were prepping for a show lost weight, whereas the other uh, seven, the controls, just ate at maintenance. Those who were dieting um, saw an, their average testosterone levels go down by about 66 nanograms per deciliter, but were still in the normal range. And so, yeah, weight loss might cause some change in testosterone levels, but that like drop particularly in only seven people, it's a small, it's like 66 nanograms per deciliter. I'm like, dude, that's not even enough to care about it, mm -hmm. Not only is that reflected, like that could be due to analytical variation or biological variation or potentially both, but also like, it's just 60 nanograms, dude. Like who cares anyway? <laughs> okay. Moving on. Uh, let's talk about how fat content in the diet actually affects testosterone levels. It has been said that low fat diets, reduce testosterone concentrations, particularly during a calorie deficit. So let's look at some data. Uh, one study recruited 30 healthy men aged 40 to 49 to participate in a dietary intervention where dietary fat was decreased and then assess how this changed testosterone levels compared to their baseline diet. So subjects followed their baseline diet for two weeks, then changed their diet for a six-week period, and then finally reverted back to their baseline diet for six weeks. The different diets were as follows. The baseline diet had about uh, between 37 to 40% fat, and the low-fat diet had only 25% fat. Um, and a large amount of the saturated fat was replaced with polyunsaturated fat during the low-fat dietary intervention. So low in saturated fat and lower in fat. So this should have crashed people's testosterone levels uh, if this theory were true. So blood samples were taken at the end of each period to assess total testosterone levels during the baseline Okay, the people's uh, the average testosterone level is 655 nanograms per deciliter, whereas during the six week low fat dietary intervention, the average testosterone level is 560 nanograms per deciliter. So just for the listeners at home, Austin, if I told you, hey, dude, I just got some blood work done. Uh, and if I compare it to how my blood work looked six weeks ago, my testosterone level is lower. It was 655. Now it's 560. What do you say? I shrug. <laughs> <laughs> I can't care. It's just too small of a difference. Like I just, not yeah. only is that within that reference change value, it's still again within the potential limits of the test variation um, and the biological variation, but like you're still within normal limits. So, yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, I think that this can be challenging for, for, you know, some folks to hear who are very fixated on the numbers. I think there's multiple dynamic elements to this system. And particularly if you feel fine and, you know, um, there's no other, you know, major changes here. Of course, my usual question that often comes up is, is why are we measuring this um, at all? But um, again, even with a larger sample where you're going to wash out some of that, uh, you know, systematic error in the test, even if this is a real change of this magnitude, it's, 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 you know, we don't have a lot of great reason to believe that 
going from that kind of starting value to that kind of ending value, even if real on average is going to have a substantial impact on your health or performance outcomes. And so that's kind of a little bit more elaborate uh, explanation of the shrug, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, there's multiple other studies showing the same relationship. Basically, when people go in from high fat to low fat, sometimes their testosterone level drops by like, again, an, a small marginal amount. Others, it stays the same. Others, it actually goes up. It's just kind of all over the place because, again, it just doesn't really seem to have <laughs> a reliable effect. And the magnitude is so small that it's just not really – you can't really detect it. And so there's some other uh, resources I've linked in the description below um, that you can read up on. But again, my takeaway as far as how does dietary fat actually affect testosterone levels, whether they're dieting, whether they're maintenance or whatever, it's just no real effect of any clinical significance because it's just like, who cares if it does drop? Yeah. And we've, we've discussed in previous episodes kind of what our recommendations would be for general health promoting dietary pattern, including the elements of the diet pertaining to, you know, dietary fat intake and subtypes of fat intake. And I think that, you know, whether or not somebody has concerns relating to testosterone or if they have hypogonadism, those dietary recommendations that we would make would not change for somebody in that situation. They'd be the same dietary recommendations we'd make for people for general health, for cardiovascular risk reduction, for, for everything else. So there's not dietary hacks that we recommend um, that would that would have a, a you know, a, a super exciting impact on this outside of impacts on general health. So if you're going from terrible dietary quality to a dietary pattern that fits more with what we described, yeah, we're down with that. Um, so yeah. Yep. I would agree. Uh, it's also been suggested that carbohydrates may affect total testosterone. Um, so for example, a low carbohydrate diet with less than 5% of total energy content coming from carbohydrates, decreased plasma total testosterone levels, <laughs> which it was a small amount, but I'm just thinking like what community, what dietary community is out there promoting that their particular dietary pattern is going to raise testosterone levels. It's the low carb keto carnivore that those types of folks who eat very low carbohydrate diets, less than 5% of their total daily energy content. When at the data actually shows actually kind of maybe decreases total testosterone levels, but again, not to a level that I care about. Um, there's other studies that show a high carbohydrate diet actually increases total testosterone. Uh, and a recent study shows no significant relationship between dietary intake of carbohydrate and total and free testosterone levels in healthy women. And all of that, it's the same story from dietary fat. I just don't think that carbohydrate intake generally affects testosterone levels outside of the total dietary pattern and how that is actually influencing someone's health. So and for calories. example, yeah. and, well, right. <laughs> Yeah, yep. we're getting there. But it has been said that vegans and vegetarians generally have a lower testosterone level than their omnivorous counterparts. So is that true? A uh, 2021 study actually looked at the amount of plant-based food content that people ate and tried to correlate it to their testosterone levels. And they found no relationship between the amount of plant-based food content in the diet and folks' testosterone levels. Rather, the thing that predicted testosterone levels the most in the study set, BMI. And guess what group tends to have a more appropriate BMI? Vegans and vegetarians, because <laughs> on average, they tend to eat less calories and uh, tend to have better body composition than those who um, eat uh, animal-based foods. Although that's not saying that animal products are bad. It's just that in general, vegans and vegetarians tend to be a little more health conscious, tend to eat a higher quality diet, have more dietary fiber, eat more fruits and vegetables, et cetera. So I'm not saying that animal products are bad. It's just that, you know, if you're just going to say that vegans and vegetarians have lower testosterone levels, 
on average and that that actually matters. Well, you got to show me the data. On the same kind of sort of point, there's it's been said that phytoestrogens and like the isoflavones in soy are a concern and that if you, t- you know, you're a soy boy, you're <laughs> having too much soy, having too much phytoestrogens, you're going to, your estrogen levels are going to go through the roof and your testosterone levels are going to go, you know, in the toilet. Well, a meta-analysis of 41 studies investigating total testosterone and estrogen levels in over a thousand men compared to their soy protein or isoflavone intake showed no significant correlation for either to total testosterone or estrogen levels. I don't know what else you want me to say. Like, I just, I want to come up with something juicier and be like, look, I found this thing, that one weird trick to not only juice your testosterone levels, but also juice your gains. It's like, where is it though? Where is it? I haven't found it yet. Although this next section may be illustrative. Uh, so there, we know things like alcohol, for example, uh, excess alcohol use does in fact reduce testosterone levels to a clinically significant effect. And that usually correlates with, you know, pretty advanced liver disease, um, you know, and so we're not talking about like, oh, you went out and you had, you know, four drinks instead of two, like, oh, your testosterone levels for one day are a little low. No, we're talking about this happens repeatedly. You've actually suffered some liver damage and that's affected, you know, not only endocrine signaling, but also just your body, your health in general. And Austin, you probably see this in the hospital. I see advanced liver disease all the time. Uh, and so, yes, fully agree that that can wreak havoc. And uh, one of my least favorite conditions to manage is very advanced liver disease. But even aside from that, it's worth pointing out that even if you don't reach that level, that you know, long-term habitual intake of alcohol, even in much more modest quantities, can still lead to many of the similar symptoms and concerns that might lead people to get a testosterone level checked in the first place. And so very frequently when I have somebody who's concerned about their testosterone and I'm asking them, you know, why, what's going on? Tell me what you're experiencing that's leading to you, you know, wanting to talk about this. If they're like, I'm not feeling good or I'm feeling tired or low energy or low mood or poor sleep or any of these other kinds of things, it's like, check, 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 check. All those things can also be caused by, you know, uh, uh, you know, excessive alcohol uh, uh, intake, which is very, very common um, among several several of the other things that we're going to be discussing in this section. And that's something that people are a lot less uh, likely or th- they get a lot less excited to work on their excess alcohol intake compared with the prospect of having a simple explanation like low testosterone that can be treated with an injection. Yep. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, spoking is obviously something we talk about with respect to lifestyle change and pretty much every podcast that we discuss lifestyle change. I will tell you, I do not feel confident in reflecting what the evidence says on cigarette smoking and cigarette smoking cessation and testosterone levels because it is all over the place. There are some studies that show that smokers have higher total testosterone levels, but also have higher SHBG levels, so maybe less bioavailable testosterone. There's also studies showing that people who quit, their testosterone levels go down actually and stay down for like up to a year after cessation. Uh, So for example, there's a study, 76 men who were undergoing smoking cessation, uh, 34 of them were unsuccessful, 16 failed after six weeks and 25 were successful. And so when they measured testosterone levels after a year compared to when they were smoking, the ones who were successful at smoking cessation, their testosterone levels were lower. They went from 360 to 320 nanograms per deciliter on average. Now, again, Austin, if I texted you and I was like, Hey, look, dude, I got my testosterone level measured uh, this year. You know, my, my yearly labs first, you would roll your eyes. And then I would tell you that my testosterone went from 360 to 320 and you would go like, Okay. Yeah. And you would have no response because I don't know what to make of that. It's just, <laughs> they're just numbers. And so, and that's pretty much all the numbers I pull, 
told you guys so far, it's just numbers. You know, there's literally no possible finding from any of these studies relating cigarette smoking to anything relating to testosterone levels that is going to change the recommendation to anything but don't smoke or quit smoking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, can you imagine, like, what, again, I could pull together maybe a dozen studies or, or so showing that people who smoke have higher testosterone, total testosterone <laughs> yeah, levels right. than people who don't smoke. And I would say, I would introduce a supplement. It would look a lot like a cigarette. <laughs> Raise your testosterone levels. Yeah. And people would be like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, dude, that one weird trick. Um, there are other things that correlate uh, and maybe causative of low testosterone, uh, so chronic inflammatory diseases like HIV, cancer, autoimmune diseases. You would want to make sure that not only the, if you have those things, they're being adequately managed and treated, uh, but also that you don't have those things or don't get those things to the extent you can control that. Because mm-hmm. um, those all definitely would lower testosterone significantly and far more significantly than anything we've talked about so far. Austin, you've obviously taken care of people who have HIV or certain cancers, autoimmune diseases. And, you know, not that you're measuring testosterone levels like in the hospital on it, you know, very often, but they're, that, that's like frank hypogonadism in, in these folks who have not, you know, adequately been treated. That'd yeah. Be fair and sometimes it's even, yeah, yeah. I mean, chemotherapy can, can do a lot to people uh, on that front. Chronic infections, particularly when advanced, I told you the, the lowest I ever saw was just an undetectable testosterone level in a gentleman with, uh, with AIDS. And so these things definitely, uh, these things, these can, these things can cause a very clinically significant impact on these levels. But again, even in those situations, you know, people often have bigger short-term problems to deal with. And then if those are appropriately managed, then typically this can, this will often both improve to some degree spontaneously. And then you can kind of make the determination of, do we need to add on, you know, TRT or something like that for the person? Yep. I agree. Uh, so with respect to diet and its effect on testosterone overall, my take is outside of malnutrition situations like anorexia nervosa, relative energy deficiency syndrome, and similar, the impact of different macronutrients on testosterone appears to be negligible. In contrast, overnutrition, particularly when leading to overweight and obesity does appear to increase the risk of clinically relevant changes in testosterone. It's like hypogonadism. And so I'd be far more concerned about somebody's energy intake rather than was it low fat, high fat, low carb, high carb, more saturated fat or dietary cholesterol versus less. Cause those things just don't seem to move the needle. Whereas if somebody's dietary pattern was setting them up to gain a lot of weight, particularly body fat, uh, I can say with some certainty that an increase in body fat, particularly to above healthy levels is going to negatively affect their endocrine system. And so in addition to a whole host of other things. Um, so that's pretty much my take on testosterone and dietary patterns. So if we're wrapping this up, some take-homes. So with respect to exercise and testosterone, we know that in the short term, acutely, testosterone rises immediately following an acute resistance exercise bout for about 30 minutes. This coincides with adjustment of the androgen receptor content and sensitivity. And then again, over the next few hours, testosterone tends to return to basal levels, whereas androgen receptor content and sensitivity tends to increase to sort of reenter homeostasis. This acute testosteronemia doesn't always occur and may not be necessary for hypertrophy or strength gains. And overall, these small changes acutely uh, seem to not really predict a training response. It also seems like exercise doesn't really influence basal testosterone levels in the medium to long term either. The chronic effects of exercise on testosterone levels are quite unremarkable and don't seem to predict training response provided an individual is not hypogonadal so below normal testosterone level or taking super physiological amounts of testosterone. So they're on, uh, you know, AAS or PEDs and their testosterone levels are through the roof. 
with respect to diet, virtually all types of health promoting dietary patterns can optimize, quote unquote, testosterone, provided they provide the right amount of energy. Uh, so no malnutrition or overnutrition, and they ultimately result in the appropriate waist circumference, body composition, body weight, et cetera, for the person and fuel their activities appropriately. Uh, drinking, smoking, sleep quality, uh, sleep apnea, chronic inflammatory diseases are all like legit causes of low testosterone that are clinically relevant. And again, far surpass any of the numbers that we've talked about with respect to dietary pattern or exercise related manipulations of testosterone. So if you've even at some point in your life cared about how exercise is affecting your testosterone, well, you should care far more about drinking, smoking, sleep quality, sleep apnea, chronic inflammatory diseases, and make sure that all of those things are taken care of if you still care about your testosterone levels today. Uh, and my final piece of advice here, and I think Austin, I feel like I feel a rant just brewing. It's deep down <laughs> in him. Now, granted, it's been a long podcast, so he's, he's a little fatigued, but I think it's in there. My, my take-home advice is this. Be skeptical. What we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, what would it take for me to be impressed or interested in a change in testosterone? The change in magnitude needs to be big enough for me to think, huh, that seems real. That change in that that real finding also needs to be correlated to an outcome I care about, whether it's improved muscle mass, improved muscle strength, improved cardiorespiratory fitness, or improvement in a particular health trajectory. And that outcome needs to be sufficiently tied to that change in testosterone. And so far, all of the data that I've reviewed here, and I don't know how many, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 studies, whatever, things that nobody's going to read, I'm not impressed with any of them. I'm not impressed with a single one of them. And so I don't think there's any hack to your training, to your diet that is likely to alter testosterone in a way that is going to ultimately change your trajectory. I think all of that is a waste of time. Rather, you should focus on what's actually generating the demonstrable results. Are you getting stronger? Are your are you getting bigger muscles based on measurements or other sort of analysis? Is your health actually improving based on, again, objective data here? Uh, and so using that to guide your training is far more effective than anything you could do with measuring testosterone. And so I will say it again, like I said, probably two years ago now, stop worrying about your testosterone. <laughs> If you're worried about being hypogonadal and you have other signs and symptoms based on our, I believe that was our first podcast that we did um, on testosterone, get that worked up. But outside of that, or again, taking very high doses of testosterone to be in super physiological range, I don't think testosterone predicts or reflects sort of training response. I just can't care. I want to care. And if we do a fifth episode on testosterone, we can care then. We'll find some new information. <laughs> but right now, don't care. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I do consults with folks remotely semi-regularly for this kind of thing. And if you want to have an idea of how those typically go, and you can potentially even save yourself some some money here if you don't want to even do that. The first question is always revolving around what led to this being checked and what else was checked at the same time along with it, just to make sure that was it appropriate to evaluate this? And if so, was the appropriate evaluation done overall? That's the first part. And then the second part is basically working through, you know, if people are familiar with the seven health priorities article on our website, working through those things and seeing how many of those are being appropriately met. Um, and if not, then providing some of those as, as targets to work on. And this should be music to the ears of folks who, you know, 
hate on doctors for big pharma nonsense and not emphasizing lifestyle stuff enough because here we are. Those are the initial steps I'd recommend for somebody. But if I see a compelling you know, history that fits with a diagnosis of hypogonadism and the rest of the evaluation was appropriate, as we outlined in the first part, they had their FSH and LH check. They had these secondary causes kind of evaluated appropriately and things like that. And people are you know, meeting what I would recommend as far as the lifestyle standpoint as much as possible, then sure, totally reasonable. TRT sounds great. Um, and then the other aspect is people who are wanting my opinions on, you know, anabolic use and super, super therapeutic use of these things to which I really do not have expertise or answers to give them on that front. So that's kind of like a summary of what those kind of consults can look like for people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, do we mention, I think it was like a, a Q and a segment where, you know, I, I, I highlighted the, the irony when people are like, well, you're doctors, you're being paid off by big pharma, you know, this, that, and the other. And this is an instance where we're telling people, hey, you don't, you don't need the pharma. Yeah. <laughs> if we can get your waist circumference down and get you to maybe not drink so much, then your levels will probably spontaneously normalize. That'd be awesome. <laughs> whereas, whereas for a lot of people, like with the lipid cardiovascular risk situation, it's like, mm, we can do quite a lot, but maybe the lifestyle stuff may not be enough to get us there. In which case there's a role for, you know, pharmacology in, in helping manage things. So we view that as a somewhat consistent, uh, not somewhat as a consistent position, I would say. <laughs> yeah. People only care about the big pharma thing outside of like, drugs slash hormones, whatever that they, that they don't romanticize yeah. like <laughs> testosterone supplementation has been romanticized. And so they're just like, nah, I'm cool with that. That's fine. Look, Pfizer makes it. I don't, I don't give a shit, Like, whatever. <laughs> but anything else that they haven't like romanticized or, you know, hasn't been conditioned in them where it's like, this is going to change my life for the better. <laughs> yeah. 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 They're like shakes their fists. So oh well. anyway, oh, well, yeah. Try again next time. All right. Well, this has been episode 234 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. We thank you so much for listening. Before you guys go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. Also, check out the links in the description below. I've put all the citations I talk about here in a Google Doc that you'll be able to access. Uh, we also have links to our live in-person seminars. Again, our super seminars coming up in September in LA. So if you want to get the best of the pain and rehab seminar and the best of the health and performance seminar and some new information, come to this seminar. We'd love to see you at uh, Monarch uh, Athletic Club in Los Angeles in September. Check out our sponsor, Pioneer Belts. And uh, we'll catch you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.